It's free for anyone who wants to pick it up. Uh, but how about uh, we jump into this passage, but I'm going to pray first. Let's pray. Father God, I pray as we look at these two chapters that you would speak to us. Lord, there's a lot in these two chapters that are heavy. And we, so many of us have experienced heavy lives or heavy weeks or even heavy years. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, these two chapters, that you would also see how we've got great hope in Jesus. And so wherever we're at with you, I pray that you would speak to us and change us as we encounter you in your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever experienced an event and your experience of that event is polar opposites to someone else who's experienced the same event. Maybe you experienced an event and you thought it was really great and, and someone else who you know experienced the same event and they were like, that was lousy. It, this kind of event happened for me and a friend of mine. Here's a photo that, that just brings back tears to my eyes. This is a beautiful event for me. This is Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Andre Iguodala, and a few, a few months ago, they had just won their fourth NBA championship together. That's why, why they're putting up four. And I have supported this team since 1992. And it was great that we, we won the championship, of course, because, you know, I contributed a lot to it, right? And so when I saw this, I was overjoyed, right? I remember I was tearing up a little bit. And Kate said, you're terribly pathetic. And then I get a text from a good friend of mine named Analo. Analo is a Christian, but he hates the Golden State Warriors. I actually called him up yesterday. I said, I'm going to quote you about this. Do you just dislike them or do you hate them? He goes, no, you can quote me on this. I told him it was going to be recorded. I hate the Golden State Warriors. And so he experienced this event and he was frustrated. We watch a game or two together, and, and you know, when the Warriors won, I was just over the moon. He was frustrated. One event to equal and opposite responses or experiences to that event. I bring that up because in Isaiah 24 and 25, and you can take that beautiful photo down, you, they're, they're, they're talking about an event when God closes the book on earthly history, when Jesus comes back and, and people are going to have one of two markedly different experiences of that event. There's going to be some people, well, a lot of people, who will experience the judgment of God in that event and it will be a terrible and terrifying day to be under the judgment of God. And then there is going to be a lot of people also that is going to experience that day and it's going to be the best day of their existence. Can I ask you this question? If Jesus was to come back right now, how would you experience that event? Would that be a day for you of terror and judgment or would that be a day for you where you go, yes, everything I have hoped for has finally come. 
I'm finally saved completely. Every tear is wiped away. I, I am full of joy. Because here's the thing. With that day, there's no other response. There's no other experience. It's either going to be a great and terrible day or it's going to be a great and joyous day. And we're going to see those two, uh, like the two kind of experiences of that day as you look at Isaiah 24 and 25. And this is, can I just say, this is an an extraordinarily important question. You've you've got to actually figure out where you're going to land on that day. There's no more important question today. So maybe you're, you're, you're thinking, man, I've got to buy this because I've got friends. Forget about that. Maybe you've got a problem with work or maybe you know, uh, something at home or maybe everything's going well and you're just thinking about that. Can I ask you just for the next uh, few minutes to put those aside because this is the most important question. Well, we're going to see three things as we look at this passage. We're going to see that it's going to be a day of judgment, a day of salvation, and a day of praise, a day of judgment, a day of salvation, and a day of praise. But, but I want to put this in some context because we had a look at uh, chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, last week, and so we're skipping ahead a lot. And, and this is from a section of Isaiah chapter 13 to 27. And if you just flip back in your Bibles, just have a look at the teen, teen numbers of, of Isaiah. What, what you see, just have a look at the, um, the headings there. What Isaiah brings is prophecies of judgment against the nations. These nations, by and large, were enemies of Israel. By and large, they oppressed and destroyed and warred against Israel. And finally, there's a crescendo in, verses, in chapters 24 to 27, where Isaiah brings us into a picture or, or shows us a picture of the end. And once again, the first thing he's going to show us is a day of judgment. Have a look at Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1 with me. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth. Notice who it is who, who is doing it. It's not you or me. It's, it, it's not the sun, which you know, all the scientists say it's going uh, to expand too much. It's not the environment. It's not going to be CO2, carbon gases, even though we need to think about those. No, it's, it, it's God. He is coming in judgment. He will lay waste. He will devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. But who's he going to do this to? Well, verse 2, it will be the same for the priest as for people, the master as for his servant, the mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. What Isaiah is trying to show is it doesn't matter who you are. All of us fit into one of those categories. This is a, this is a day that it doesn't matter what strata of society that you're going to be in, what profession you're going to be in, you're going to experience this. But why? Well, have a look at verse 5 with me. The earth is defiled by its people. The earth is defiled by its people. Why? What have they done? Still in verse 5, they have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, 
and broken the everlasting covenant. What, what Isaiah is trying to say is he said the same thing in three different ways, that we have broken our relationship with God. We have not wanted to live as if God is, is there. We've wanted to be our own boss. We don't want to live under God's laws or lordship. And, and yet so many of us, I dare say, are going, well, hands, that's just not me. Because that paints the picture of somebody who is lawless or immoral. Hence, that's just not me. I'm a good moral person. But what we've got to realize is this. That if we go back to the Ten Commandments, and so many of us think we're good people because we obey the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one is all about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and not having any other God but God. What does that mean? Well, that means that God is meant to be the centre of our lives in every area. God is meant to be the centre of our lives. We're meant to find our purpose, our happiness, our everything from God and our relationship with God. Not anything else. You see, therefore, if we put our our lives in that category or our morality in that category, sin is not just doing the wrong things. It's taking the good things that God has given us and putting them at the center of our lives and seeing them as ultimate things. See, it's a bit like this. Who loves the movie Rocky here? Put, put up your hands if you love the movie Rocky. A few of you guys do. I love the movie Rocky. And at one point in Rocky 1, there's a point where Rocky is um, talking to uh, his girlfriend at the time. I think they end up getting married. And she's asking, she asks the question, why is it important to go the distance with Apollo Creed? Well, why is it important to, to be standing at the end? And I'm not going to do his voice, but here's what he says. He says, so then I will know that I am not a bum. So, see, what is Rocky doing? He is saying, I am justifying my existence by my athletic endeavors. He is taking an, a good thing and making an ultimate thing. He is defining everything by his boxing. Now, I I dare say none of us define ourselves here by boxing or maybe athletic endeavours, but but I wonder what is at the centre of your life. For Rocky, it was his athletic endeavours that will make him significant. I wonder what you look to to make you significant. I wonder if it's your work. That, that, that you're looking to your work to make, make sense of your world, to give you happiness. You're thinking, if I only get this right job, or if, or if I get the right boss, or I'm in the right company, or I get the right paycheck, or the right, the right acclaim, then I will be happy. What you've done there, if that is you, you've taken a good thing and made it the ultimate thing. And your work has become your God. And that's probably why you're a workaholic. Or, or, or maybe, maybe it's other things. Maybe it's your family 
that, that, that you are so concerned about your kids being the right kids. They're, they're meant to get the right marks in school. They're meant to be beautiful kids so that you feel a sense of accomplishment. What are you doing there? Well, you've made your children the center of your life. And they have become your gods. And that's why you're so devastated when they're terrible. Or maybe your kids aren't terrible, maybe they're just mine, and that's okay, right? But, but see, can you see how we take good things and we make them ultimate things? And instead of, what we do, instead of looking to God for our happiness, our purpose, our identity, we take other things and we look to them to make us happy, whole, full of purpose. And when we've done that, We've actually worshipped a different God. We may not worship an ancient God like Baal or even a different God that's around today. No, but we're still worshipping a different God. And we are still doing the very things that Isaiah points out in verse verse 5. What are you finding your identity in? Is it God or is it something else? These people actually found their identity in partying. Have a look at verse 7 with me. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The joyful timbrels are stilled. The noise of the revelers is stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. So, so here you see a, a party town, a party city, much like Sydney is, Right? We love to celebrate in Sydney, but did you see what has happened? These people who love to drink, love to party. Well, there's going to be a day when everything, everything is stilled. That the partying, the music finishes. The music dies. The beer is flat. I don't like beer, but maybe you do. I've been told flat beer is terrible. I love Coke. Flat Coke is absolutely an abomination. And so, everything, everything, just has faded. Now, now, one of the things I've got to say is that this is not this is not saying, hey, you can't enjoy your beer or wine. No, in, in chapter twenty-five, when God throws a party, he, you know, new wine flows. No, no, these people, what they've done is find their ultimate in the partying thing. They live for the weekend. They live for social things. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And yet, what does this, what is their city like? Have a look at verse 10. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. Now, can I just say that I, I really don't like to do this, but, but I think it's important to do it here. The, the word for ruin there, it's, it's kind of a bad translation. The, the, the underlying Hebrew word is a word tohu. You, you get that from Genesis 2, Genesis 1 verse 2, where the, the, um, the earth is formless, tohu. It's this idea that it's empty. The, uh, what he's trying to say is that there is something, there's a city there, yeah, but there's, it's empty. And he's not even saying there's no people in it. But it seems like it's all meaningless, I think that's what he's getting at. 
that there's all this partying going on, but there's nothing really there. It's like uh, Solomon Ecclesiastes who, who chucks all these parties and he sees it's all meaningless. What Isaiah is saying is that one day people would realize all their partying has come to nothing. All, all of it is stilled. All of it is stilled. And did you see once again in verse 10, the entrance to every house is barred. That is, the shutters have come down and relationships have stopped. This is a very, very sad thing. And then in verse 18, the second half of verse 18, we see that the floodgates of heaven are open. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is violently shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of rebellion that it falls never to rise again. In that day, the Lord will punish. God is bringing judgment. God is reigning. And he is the active one bringing judgment. Some of you guys are reading this or hearing this and going, Hans, I actually don't like this picture because I disagree. I believe in a God of love. And a God of love cannot be a God of judgment because a loving God would never do these things. A loving God would never do these things. I remember in my first year, I started a church from scratch a number of years ago, and in the first year of it, there was a, there was a girl coming along, she was checking out Jesus, and um, she really counted herself as very progressive. And she came up to me after, after a service, and she said, Hans, you talked about a God of judgment, I find that extremely offensive. And at that time, I was talking to a guy who had just come off the street, he was doing a PhD, and he was from Iran. And he started listening to this conversation. She, she was saying, I find the idea of a God who judges extremely uh, offensive. I believe in a God who loves everybody. And he jumped in and goes, what? You believe in a God who loves everybody? I find that extremely offensive. And I love a God who judges everybody. And I just stood back and thought, well, this is interesting. And they just went at it. She's like, how can you say that God judges everybody? And he goes, look at all the terrible things that happen in the world. How can you say that God doesn't judge everybody? And he goes, how can you say that God loves everybody? And she goes, well, because I just kind of believe that. She goes, so you, you think you could believe, that, you know, love Hitler and he went through this big list? And as I was stepping back and just listening to this conversation, there was a guy who was coming to the church for a bit. He was a, a pastor and his life fell apart and he came to the church for a bit. But he said, what you're seeing there is how our views and especially objections to God are very cultural. If you do not like a God who judges that shows you that you've got an extremely Western mindset. Because if you grew up in Iran, you wouldn't think that way. And if you believe in a God who loves everybody, where do you actually get that from? Because if you have a look at the world's religions, the only, the only group of uh, people that actually believe that 
are Christians who believe the gospel. We talk to our Muslim friends, they would not believe that. So your objection to the fact that God judges is yours because you're a Westerner. And so, how do you know you're right when most of the world will actually disagree with you on that point? Why would you hold that belief as something universal when it's not universally held? Some of you guys are going, well, but, but hands, has God done enough to save people? Uh, surely he should have done more. But he's done everything. Here's what C.S. Law says to that objection. What, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins at all costs? To give them a fresh start? Smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary to forgive them. They will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. What is C.S. Lewis saying there? He's saying, if you're saying to God, God, you should have done more. God has done everything so that people are saved. God has done everything so that people will escape his judgment. And yet it's up to them. In the end, it's up to them whether they escape God's judgment. Jesus has come down and died for us, taking God's wrath upon himself, taking God's judgment upon himself, so that if you are sitting here today, you can escape God's judgment by putting your trust in Jesus. The question is, are you going to do that? Are you going to find your identity in the things of this world, or you'll find your identity in Jesus? Are you going to bow your knee to the things of this world, or bow your knee to Jesus? That's the question in the end. What are you going to do? Because when Jesus comes back, if you don't trust in him, it will be a day of judgment. But if you trust in him, it will be a great day of salvation. Have a look at Isaiah chapter 25, verse 1. Lord, you are my God, and I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. I think that's a beautiful verse because there's Isaiah himself saying, God, you're mine, I am yours, and you've done wonderful things. And we would think, well, what are those wonderful things? What are those wonderful things that God has done? A bunch of beautiful things. Have a look at verse 2. Here are the wonderful things. You have made the city a heap of rubble. Would you think that's wonderful? Well, what, have you, what has he done? The fortified town of ruin, the foreigner stronghold, a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. He's, he's looking at God's judgment and saying, wow, you've done it. And we're going to come back to that. Don't worry. Just If you've got questions about that, we're going to come back to that. But he is praising God because God has come through. Have a look at verse 9. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. These are a bunch of people who, who uh, we saw in the last 10 chapters, uh, chapters 13 through 23. They have been under 
under the brutal regime of so many nations and God has overthrown them. They've been in turmoil in this world and they've trusted God to the end and God has been faithful. The beautiful thing, maybe you're going through turmoil in this life. God will be faithful to you through to the end. God is a faithful God. But what does this salvation look like? Well, there's a picture of it in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord will Almighty will prepare a rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. I, I, I don't know what, what, what you like, but I can just imagine the greatest of food, a perfectly cooked steak, all the greatest food there. And also, what is he going to do? Even something better than that. Verse 7. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove people's disgrace from all the earth. He will get away. He will just destroy death. Death will be no more. You know, there's going to be no more tears. And the disgrace, the shame of sin, he's going to deal with, remove once and for all. How does this come about? Well, we know this from, uh, from the New Testament. We also know this from Revelation 7, that it's Jesus who does this. Jesus brings this. And isn't this great news? I wonder if you're sick of death. I wonder if you're sick of shedding tears. I wonder if you're sick of being reminded of your own sin and seeing the effects of your own sin. What, what this passage is saying, one day it'll be all gone. All gone. I, I, just this week, I had, uh, friends of Kate and I lost their little baby in, in utero. And and the, they gave birth, and it was, it was barely big enough to fit in the palm of their hand. And you can imagine the tears that were shed. I, I, I've got another friend who got sick and is now permanently in a wheelchair. And he longs for his old life to be back, and... and and he, he, was, he used to be great in ministry, but now he's just confined to an old person's home, even though he's only 45. I know a friend who's struggling with a particular sin, and, and it seems like uh, this sin mostly gets the better of him. And I know another friend who's constantly, every day, reminded of the sins that he has committed and the relationships that those sins or that sin destroyed. The good news for all, all, those, all my friends and for all of you is one day they will be a distant memory. One day death will be no more, no, no more funerals. One day no more tears. One day, no more sin. 
I wonder if you're looking forward to that day. That day only, be, only comes through what Jesus has done. When Jesus died and he rose again, what that meant is that he has defeated death, sin, and has opened up the doorway to eternity with him. It was Jesus who was all anguish that you might be all joy. It was, it was Jesus who was rejected that you might be welcomed as a friend. It was Jesus who experienced hell's worst that you might experience heaven's best. It was Jesus who was wounded that you may be healed. It was Jesus who was tormented so that you would be eternally comforted. It was Jesus who wept that all tears might be wiped from your eyes. It was Jesus who experienced rejection from the Father so that you might receive the Father's welcome. It was Jesus who closed his eyes in death that you may open your eyes in eternity. It was Jesus who died so that you may live forever. Jesus has done it all. So how are you going to respond to that? Can I just say, be thankful? Get up every day. If you live in that reality, get up every day and remind yourself of the fact that Jesus loved you and died for you and that is you, that is your future. That is your hope. Now, imagine if you went to work and went to school and you, and you loved your kids and your wife or your husband. With that in mind, wouldn't your life change because you are full of joy? Of course it would. Of course it would. Remind yourself every day of that and remind your heart of that because this is a great day of salvation. But finally, it'll be also a day of praise. I want you to flip back to chapter 24 with me. I wonder, as Serena was reading it, did you get a bit in there that was just a bit weird? So you've got in verses 1 to 12, you've got, um, or 1 to 13, like all this judgment. And then from the second half of 16 onwards, you've got all this judgment for the rest of the chapter. So you've got all this judgment coming. And then in verse 14, they raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the, the God of Israel. In the islands of the sea, from the ends of the earth, we hear singing glory to the righteous one. Uh, uh, do, do you feel like that, that comes in a weird place? Judgment, judgment, judgment. Oh, praise God. That's kind of what it looks like or feels like. Why are they praising God? Well, as we saw in verses 25, 1 to 6, God has come through for them. God has saved them from their enemies. They have been oppressed. They have been downtrodden and God has saved them. They are praising God because of His righteousness because of the satisfaction of his justice. God has come through with justice, and therefore they are praising him for it. Do you realize that one day you will see God's judgment come, and if you trust in Jesus, you will praise God for it? Because, you, because the justice that your soul longs for will be satisfied. 
And I think one of the reasons why these verses, at, at least for me, kind of jar is because I've lived a very good life. I've lived a very good life. I remember a number of years ago at this church, I was preaching through the book of Judges. And if you've read the book of Judges, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of God, uh, you know, doing some things that, that we find very challenging. And at one point, I was, I was kind of defending God's action, you know, judgment and, and all this kind of thing. And there's a guy at the back, and he was with our church for a few years. His name's Azazi, and he's a great guy. He's gone to do a PhD at Western uh, UWS and goes to another church there. And, uh, but I can remember preaching this and defending this. And he had this big smile on his face. He's kind of laughing under his breath. And I went up to him after the service and I said, mate, look, I, was, I, was, I thought I was doing a good job of defending um, um, you know, God's justice and all this kind of stuff, but you were, kind of, uh, you were laughing at that point. Were you thinking about something else? And he goes, no, I was listening to your sermon. I said, well, so why are you laughing? And he goes, oh, because you're so white. And I was like, really? I thought I was Asian. But uh, no, I didn't say that at all. I said, tell me, tell me what, what you mean by that. And, he said, and then he got very serious. He said, I come from Nigeria. And I have lived, and my, my people have lived in a blood-soaked land. When I read the fact that God is going to judge and bring justice, it's not something that causes me a problem. My heart leaps with joy. Because I know people who have lost, lost their families to people who have come in and done terrible things. And we cry out, God, what are you going to do? Why haven't you done something? And so the reason why you are kind of weirded out by that is because you're white and you live in Australia and you've had a great life. If you live where I lived and you experience what I experienced you wouldn't have the problem. You would be praising God. See, the beautiful... They, I think he's absolutely right. If we have problems with this, if we have problems with people praising God because of his judgment and his justice, it is because we've had a great life, free of oppression, free of anything that has really hurt us. And so we should give thanks to God for that. But here's the thing. I know that there are people in this room who have been thoroughly and terribly hurt. Maybe you trusted someone and they hurt you. Maybe it was someone who, did, who you didn't trust, but they hurt you anyway, and you've been thoroughly hurt, and there's been no justice. The beautiful thing is this. One day, justice will be done. God will come back. And justice will be done. And one day you will praise God for that justice. One day, the hurt that you've experienced, the tears that you have shed will be wiped away as Jesus comes back. So look forward to that day, that great day of hope, if that is you. That great day of hope, that great day of justice, that great day of the Lord. That is the place where we're going to see that justice being done. These two chapters, in fact, Isaiah 24 to 27 give us this choice. 
And Kate alluded to this choice, but if you have a look at the first verse of chapter 26, it talks about uh, being in a city. There's two cities that you can live in. The one which is under destruction or the one that loves the Lord. And therefore, you're going to have two different experiences of that last day. Which city are you living in? Are you living out the reality of ignoring God and building your identity on everything else that is not God? Or are you trusting in what Jesus has done? Are you looking forward to his return where justice will be finally done, where death will be finally defeated, where your sin will be finally 100% dealt with completely and every tear will be wiped away? One event, two experiences. What's going to be your experience when Jesus comes back? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this passage. It's heavy. It deals with things that we don't really think about a lot, but we should. Lord, I thank you that one day, Justice will be finally done. That Jesus will come back. But Lord, I do pray for those people who are in this room and I do pray for the people that are not in this room but people we love who are outside this room who for that day when Jesus comes back, it will be a terrible day. Lord, please, will you save them? Will you, will you rescue them? Lord, for those of us who are racked by sin or racked by tears or racked by uh, ill health or racked by just the constant shadow of death over us, Lord, help us to look forward to that day, a day when death will be no more, where sin will be no more, where tears will be no more. And so in response to that, we cry, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.